book of Genesis, it would be good for us to recognize once again that God has an ultimate purpose in all that he does. Uh, that's, that's the reality. God has a purpose. You looking for purpose? We'll, we'll look to God because he's got a purpose, an ultimate purpose in all he does, to spread the fame of his name and his glory throughout the entire world through a people whom he has redeemed well with forever. This is his purpose. It's the foundational reality of all of life. It speaks of our very purpose in life, how to live and where to find our joy. We're looking for joy, looking for life. Well, don't look any further than God and his purpose. It would would be good for us to consider that God accomplishes that mission not through strong and wise and powerful and impressive people. He actually works through us who are weak and significant in the grand scheme of things. Whether we think that or whether the world thinks that, the reality is small and significant in the grand scheme of things, and we trust God in all of it. Every story that we've seen in Genesis so far, whether it's Cain and Abel or, or the story of Noah uh, and the flood and, and, and the after, after the flood kind of actions, or, or Abram and Sarai, we see that... Um, that they were, they, were, they were less than. They, they had made plenty of mistakes. They, they had, uh, had errors throughout their life. And they were weak. And they were seemingly foolish in the world's eyes. And the pattern continues through the rest of Genesis. So whether it's Joseph or, or then you get into Exodus and Moses. Or you get in books later on where you see King David. You see weak men and weak women who are simply living for the glory of God, but doing so in a very weak and, and often haphazard way. The, the weakness is the way that God continues uh, in, in us today. He, he is working in us and in our weakness. We, we wrestle against being weak. We don't like being weak. Woke up this morning, and I felt very weak uh, spiritually. Felt felt um, very needy when I woke up. And, and I'll probably feel weak and needy this afternoon. I, I feel weak and needy right now in this moment. He, he, though, God is going to carry out his purposes through someone like me and someone like you. He is, he is purposing to do that. He's redeemed us, and he's going to dwell with us forever. He dwells with us now, but in the day to come, we will be with him, see him as he is. This is to show specifically that he is going to redeem his people He's going to accomplish his work. He's going to glorify his name. No matter what's going on with us, no matter how strong or how weak we are at any given time, he is going to be the one who redeems. He is the one who strengthens. He is the one who empowers. He is the one who sanctifies. He's the one who preserves us. He's the one who will present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The zeal of the Lord hosts will accomplish this. I thank God that it's not dependent on you and me. So let me ask you, do you feel weak? I hope you do. Do you feel ineffective, maybe? Or maybe you feel purposeless. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel invisible. You feel like you just don't really matter to anybody or anything. Maybe we find this text to stir up our faith and hope and... Uh, where we see this morning this this specific thing, that God will sovereignly accomplish what he purposes. 
through those whom many consider weak and foolish for the glory of his name. God will sovereignly accomplish what he purposes through those whom many consider weak and foolish for the glory of his name. So to stir up faith by the power of the Spirit this morning, I'd like to consider the following three aspects of the story from God's word and this story about Jacob and Esau. First, God sovereignly uses suffering to accomplish his good purposes. Secondly, God chooses sovereignly to accomplish his eternal purposes. And then third, God displays sovereign mercy to accomplish his redemptive purposes. These are the three points. Let's start with the first one. God sovereignly uses suffering to accomplish his good purposes. And recall what we've already seen a number of times in the previous months in Genesis. When we read the words at the beginning of the text, where it says, these are the generations of, we know that we're entering a new, a new section. It's, it's not just a literary tool, though. It's a purposeful teaching from God for the people of Israel who are sitting at the edge of the promised land, looking in front of them at these these obstacles, these huge obstacles, feeling very weak, feeling very vulnerable, and yet feeling like they knowing that they have to go in. They want to go in, but they're scared to go in. They're w- wondering. So all the way along in Genesis, what we've seen is God saying, hey, here's the origins of the universe. I, I'm, I'm your God. I'm the one who started it all. I'm the one who existed from before the foundation of the world. I'm the one who created everything you see and everything you don't see. I, 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 uh, he wanted to show them also the origin of men and the origin of, of angels. He wanted to show them the origin of sin and the origin of our redemption, a redemption that God would accomplish through the line, specifically in our text, of Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac. It's through Isaac that the Abrahamic covenant that speaks of the salvation of many among all the nations would be fulfilled through Abraham, through Isaac, as we'll know through Jacob as well. Verse 21, we read this. And Isaac prayed to Yahweh for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. You'll remember that Isaac's mom, Sarah, was also barren. Yet she had received the promise, Abraham and Sarah had received the Abrahamic promise that there would be a child that comes, that, that through their line there would be blessing for the nations. And, and so uh, the problem was she was barren, and she was barren for 90 years of age before giving birth to Isaac. When we read of Rebekah then, we find out that she is also barren. What, what are the chances? A, a barrenness that lasted not just a few years, but a couple of decades. And we're not given the details, but we rightly understand that, that Isaac and Rebekah, along with Abraham and Sarah back in the day, Isaac and Rebekah would have not only struggled with this reality, but wondered, what in the world is God doing? He's got purposes, fine, but, but it seems as though his purposes are being squashed by something. Is he going to fulfill his covenant promise, or is he not? Well, he, he did it with Sarah through so Isaac, but, but then, then again now with Rebekah. Now, so where, where's this line of righteousness? Where's this line of blessing going to come from? So one asked the question, why did God determine for those whose offspring he would accomplish his purposes through to be unable to bear children? Seems purposeful, both Sarah and Rebekah. The Lord could have sovereignly had the man marry women who weren't barren, or the Lord could have opened Sarah or Rebecca's womb sooner than he did, but he did not do either. 
It was the Lord's will that Sarah should remain barren until she was 90. And then it was the Lord's will that Rebecca would remain barren for the first two decades of her marriage to Isaac. And, and let's recognize for a moment, it's easy to read the text and just think it's not no big deal because it's just in black and white on the page. But, but this is, you can imagine the sorrow. Can you imagine the sorrows that they experienced for 20 years or for 70 years in the case of Sarah? It's a, it's a mystery. What? Why this is happening to them? Why would God choose this for them? Why would he promise something and then seemingly not fulfill his promise for decades? So let's just recognize that the plans and purposes of God throughout history and in our very lives are often somewhat or entirely mysterious to us. Hard to, hard to grasp. When we wonder aloud why a good God would allow such and such a thing to happen, the answer is often, we don't know. There are many things that God's revealed to us, to be sure, but something simply and somewhat tragically at times remain a mystery to us. We're just left to, left to wonder, left to our hands up and certainly Sarah and Rebecca's barrenness must have left them with the same unanswered questions. They're real people, real women. It's like just like you sitting here this morning, ladies, questioning, wondering what in the world is happening. And, and, and not just for days not just for weeks, not just for months, not even just for years, but for decades, left unanswered. And certainly we have the privilege of being able to see some of, their, some of the Lord's purpose in their lives from our vantage point, looking back at history. We, we understand that some of God's purpose was to test their faith as they waited upon God to stay true to his covenant promises. So their faith was being built through this difficult time. And as they waited, their faith was strengthened. Both couples grew in dependence on God as they awaited the fulfillment of God's promises. And easy for us now to see as we read the story, harder for us to experience real time today in our own lives. Isn't it? Seems that the barrenness of Sarah and Rebecca was also purposed by God himself to encourage people like us thousands of years later to look back and see, oh, God actually was faithful to his promises as recipients of grace ourselves so we can look back and be encouraged and, and connect, connect their story up with our story and our sorrows. Ultimately, Sarah and Rebecca were barren so that their barrenness could be overcome by God, who is the author of life itself, and to communicate clearly that the covenant promises that he made would and could only be fulfilled by him alone. He was the only one. They, they, they were not able, the, the ladies were not able to open their wombs. The men were not able to do anything. God was the only one who was able to do what he did. And he was trustworthy. Now, whether in the life and story of Sarah or Rebecca, what we see clearly, it's the the Lord who's at work and their story directing and withholding and giving and purposing for his ultimate glory, for their good, and even ours as well, several thousand years later. Hard to see in the moment again, but more clearly as we look in the rear view of history. Consider that when Jesus performed any miracle, it was to demonstrate that he was from God. When, when the apostles performed miracles, it was, it was to communicate that 
um, they had been given authority from God. And when miracles are given by the Spirit today, it is not to highlight the strength and might or the, the powerful prayers of God's people, but to demonstrate that power and life comes from God and God alone. And such was the case with Sarah and Rebecca. Foundationally, you and I are not like Sarah and Rebecca. We, we are generally, but, but, but not in this way. They are specifically unique in redemptive history. Through them, specifically, the nation of Israel would come. Through them, a Savior would ultimately come. And so we're not like them in that way, but, but still we are like them in, in other ways. We, we, too, know what it's like to experience difficulty in our life and wonder why God is sovereignly purposing it to happen. We believe that God is sovereign, but we don't understand why the sorrow, why the suffering, why the struggle. God, are you in control? This would be a similar question to Sarah and Rebecca. And the often unwelcome fact is that that question may very well not be answered in our lifetime. It might be, but it might not be. But what we can be assured of is that we belong to God. If we belong to God through faith in Christ, our suffering, whatever form it will take, is not for nothing. There's purpose. There's reason. It all sits under God's ultimate purpose and plan to glorify himself, to make much of his name through a people that he has redeemed for his own glory, for our good. We can be assured that our suffering is meant to be for the glory of God. Consider the ailment that the Apostle Paul speaks of when he says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, that is the ailment. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Oh, Lord, may, may this be true of us increasingly. I am content with weaknesses. I am content with insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Speaking of God at work in him. Do you see the pattern? God is glorified when we rely upon him in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of all of our questions. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Peter tells us in, our, in the first letter, um, his first letter later on in the New Testament, about our trials and the experiences we experience are, are meant to cause us to depend on God by faith and to bring praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's, there's a purpose for it, and it's a testing of our faith so that God would receive glory. But not just that, but it, we, we receive these things because it will be ultimately for our good. We can trust God for that which we may not be able to see in the present. When we're blinded by our sorrows, we're blinded by our suffering, but what God is doing in us is something that is a weight of glory. Consider what James tells us. Consider it pure joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know you know, you can be assured, you, you, you are certain that this is true. At the testing of your faith, which it does do, it produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The purpose in your suffering under the purposes of God. The sufferings of this present time are certainly not pleasant. I, was, I woke up this morning to a dream of my parents uh, walking towards... I was walking with them, my sister and I walking with them through a, through a mall or something, and, and, and uh, there was a song being played 
uh, it's an old Christian hymn, and we were walking together. Um, and uh, for those of you who don't know, my, my dad passed away in June, and my mom is, is not doing well. So it's just uh, evidently on my on my heart. And so I was, we were walking together, arms around each other, my sister, myself, and my mom and dad. And, uh, and we were walking towards this door. And the door was, uh, on the other side of the door was heaven. And, um, and, uh, and the door started to open. And then I woke up. And, um, and I just, it was just emotional and struggling and yet filled with joy that heaven is a, it's a real hope. It's a, it's a real reality. But watching my dad suffer in those last days in particular, I went on my phone and, and I was going through all the reels of, of the suffering of my dad in those last days. Not pleasant. But the one who is in Christ is able to step back from the sufferings of life to consider them, consider them with eyes of faith and in light of what God has revealed to us in his word. And having considered the specific suffering from God's point of view, the one who follows Christ is able to count it joy, knowing that God will use it for his glory and for our good. And in the end, we will be with him forever. And so we can say by faith with the Apostle Paul, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Rebecca and Isaac were tested and strengthened in the barrenness and the waiting, and the power of God was put on display as he demonstrated that he is able to bring life from death, something out of nothing, which is what he did in creation, as what he did in the barren womb, and he, what he does in us, bringing us to life. He did it in all throughout God's word. May we as the weak men and women, we are derive some amount of peace and rest amid our varying sufferings and entrust ourselves to a faithful creator for his glory and for our good. The second point, God chooses sovereignly to accomplish his eternal purposes. God chooses sovereignly to accomplish his eternal purposes. Just, just take a quick look at what we're told as it pertains to the birth of these two, knowing that what we witness will set the stage for the rest of the story and even informs our stories today. Verse 22 says this, The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The word struggled is, is not just, um, you know, a, a, a relative, like, uncomfortable kick in the womb. Um, the word means to break or to crush or to oppress. Why is this struggle going on inside. It's a strong word. So strong was this struggle going on inside of her that she wondered what in the world was going on, so much so that she had to go to the Lord to find out what in the world is happening. And when she did, she received this answer in verse 23. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Rebecca learned that the conflict between Jacob and Esau would continue long past their birth. Not just in the womb, not just in the birth process, but beyond that. They were to become two nations. And while one would be stronger than the other, the older would end up serving the younger, going against every cultural norm in that day. And it's, and it's this little prophecy concerning Jacob and Esau and the older serving the younger that's very important 
for the rest of the story of Scripture. The, the nation of Israel would come through Jacob, through the lesser of the two, through the secondborn. The nation of Edom would come through uh, Esau. And, and these two nations would be locked in conflict uh, with each other as seen not only in the womb, but as they were being born in verses 24 through 26 and then throughout their lives. But, but there's more. In this passage, we come to something that just simply may not seem right to us if we read slowly, if we read wisely and circumspectly. Namely, that this entire situation, this relationship, this Jacob and Esau, all of what was happening um, was determined before they were born. As you may very well recall, the Apostle Paul speaks straightforwardly about this doctrine of God's sovereign election and having some, they're saving some and passing over others in Romans 9, utilizing this very story that we're in this morning. This is what he says. This is Paul. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's a quote. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. But this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. It's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This little remark, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, is a reference to another passage in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where the Lord speaks to Israel through the prophet saying this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now this teaching, while perhaps difficult to grasp and, and receive, is simple. God set his favor on Jacob and his disfavor on Esau before they were born. Before they themselves had done anything good or anything evil, they were, no matter how you cut it, no matter what you want to call it, they were predestined. The, the Apostle Paul himself anticipated the objection that we might very well feel in our own hearts right now in this moment when he wrote this in verse 14. But what do we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, that is salvation. Salvation does not depend on human will or becoming a child of God, does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, God is the, the author of life here again. What, what Was it wrong for God to predestine, not on the basis of what the twins would do, but according to his will only? Paul's reply doesn't sugarcoat it as he, as he quotes from the words of God himself in Exodus 33, in that text I just read, I, the Lord, will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is, this is God's 
prerogative. Paul concludes emphatically that even our salvation, our deliverance, our eternal redemption today depends not on you and I, not on human will or exertion, but on God alone, clearly on God alone, who has mercy. He is the mighty one to save. He is the one who is sovereign. He is the holy one who decides whom he will have mercy on and whom will be left to their own desires. God was merciful to Jacob when he set his predestinating love upon him through no merit of Jacob's. Jacob hadn't done anything good or bad. Jacob was was in his mother's womb. And God also determined to leave Esau to himself and in his sin to act according to his own desires. The truth, if we're honest with the multiple texts we find in Scripture regarding this truth, while controversial, is, is simply indisputable. From Genesis through to the New Testament and to this very day, God's eternal and sovereign purposes in redeeming a people for himself to dwell with forever do not change. He is the one who keeps the righteous line going. Not, not us. We saw that. We've seen that so far, right? God is the one who keeps his covenant. God's the one that makes the plans. God's the one who fulfills the plans. God's the one that does it. God's the one that does what man does all the time in Scripture is is inadvertently or purposely mess, try to mess his plan up. God is faithful to his covenant. He will see it done. And on account of this, the Apostle Paul revels in worship as he writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, this truth offers us hope and certainty, not, not in us being able to access salvation somehow in our own sense of goodness or, or potential goodness. We are broken vessels. We are sick. We need a doctor, and a doctor has come doctor was sent, King Jesus. What we bring to the table is our significant weaknesses. What we bring to the table is our emptiness. What we bring to the table is our hostility towards God. But God in his sovereign grace accomplishes his eternal purposes in and through weak people and hostile people, his power and glory are clearly seen. God uses suffering to accomplish his good purposes, and God chooses sovereignly to accomplish his eternal purposes. Now, to make the second point just a little bit clearer as we go forward, I want to move to our final point and consider this this morning. God displays sovereign mercy to accomplish his redemptive purposes. God displays sovereign mercy to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Verses 27 through 34 provide us with a glimpse of Jacob and Esau's character in the young adult years. We're led to see that Esau is shown as a kind of rough man, a, a man driven by his appetites. Even when he was a baby, it says he was red and, and hairy, and he's not changed any as he gets older. He's, he's a skillful hunter. He's a man of the field. He was the favorite son of Isaac, mostly because Isaac liked what he cooked. This, this, this Esau also was a man who lacked self-control. His fleshly appetites controlled him, and it drove him, evidently, to do foolish things. We also learn in these verses how the prophecy given to Rebekah at the time of their birth regarding the older serving the younger came to be fulfilled. 
They consider Esau, while he was predestined to this, he did choose in real time and of his own accord to despise his birthright. From his heart, he despised it. Contrary to popular opinion, predestination does not turn people into robots. Though it was predestined that Esau the elder would serve Jacob the younger, it was the free and willing choices of both Jacob and Esau that would get them to where they went. We must hold both truths in our minds and not pit one against the other. Esau was a fool, and in that moment he chose freely and willingly to live for his appetite rather than living as the firstborn heir of his father. And the fact is, many who profess faith in Christ are much like Esau. They think little of their inheritance of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, they're driven by their appetites. They're driven by their passions, by their cravings, instead of by Christ and his word and his spirit. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought for it with tears. Though it's clear in Scripture that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the, the Scripture also exhorts us that true faith is never alone. True faith works itself out in love and obedience. So Peter tells us to make our calling and election sure in the First chapter of Second Peter. The one who has true faith, the one who has a heart that the Spirit sovereignly and powerfully brought to life, he or she will turn from sin. They will progressively put to death the works of the flesh, and they will grow in the knowledge and love for and obedience to the Savior. And if you've been to our Wednesday night studies in the room here as the adults gather, we've been growing and understanding the dynamics of spiritual transformation. And we know that it takes action to see that transformation take place. Ultimately, it's the work of God, but it's our action as well, um, uniting the working, living for, um, engaging with the God who has is the God of the promises. He is the God over all. He's the God with the plan. He's the God with the purposes. And so it's it's working hard to, um, to entrust our lives to him and to walk in obedience to him, knowing that it is he that is working in us. Philippians 2. To grow in godly wisdom, we must give attention to God's word. We, we must take it in. We must believe it in our hearts. We must obey it to test what we hear, to see if it's true, like the Bereans did of Acts chapter 17. And if it's true, then obey it. Walk in it. Walk in the good of it. We would not only hear his word, but that we would do his word, that we would follow in obedience, so we would grow in self-control as we learn to obey the Lord day by day, moment by moment, thought by thought, learning to say no to the cravings of the flesh and say yes to God's word and the promptings of the Spirit. It's in real time and real action where obedience happens. Jacob could have shown kindness to his brother, but he didn't. Jacob, in the end, is not much different than his brother Esau. We can see clearly through the actions of Jacob that this favor from God that was shown to him wasn't because of something good in him. It wasn't because he obeyed. It wasn't because he wasn't deceptive or a liar, crafty, and cunning. 
Esau was a man driven by his fleshly appetites. Jacob was a man crafty and cunning. Jacob was merciless towards Esau in this story, and he took entire advantage of him. Yet, he was chosen by God to be the one in whom the covenant of God would be continued. And from now on until the end of Genesis chapter 35, we will learn a lot about Jacob, who would in turn be called Israel at some point. Specifically, that he is a significantly flawed man. We see that over and over again. God uses weak people. He would remain a crafty and cunning man, in fact, for many years in the future until the Lord humbled him. The reality is that neither Esau nor Jacob deserved mercy. They were both given over to their flesh. They both rightly deserved judgment. And while Esau was left to receive what he rightly deserved, God purposed from eternity to give Jacob what he did not deserve, and that is mercy. So that God's plan to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever through him and his offspring would carry on. This was the purposes and plan of God, the sovereign plan of God to redeem a people. What, what, what we've seen from the very beginning and all the way through scriptures, that left to ourselves, we are in bondage to sin. We willingly choose to disobey God. We, we know that, to, to follow our own way, to make much of ourselves, to live for our own glory. And God says, left to ourselves, we remain under his just wrath. All of mankind has turned away from God. You, at one time, if you have not trusted in Jesus, also had turned away from God, despising your creator, loving yourself rather than the creator, worshiping that which was created instead of the creator. And the result is that we would be justly condemned if it were not for grace. And God's plan to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever. Paul says in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Another passage in Romans says this, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for God, for one, will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still weak, while we were still his enemies, while we were still hostile to him, he was faithful to his covenant, promised to redeem a people himself to dwell with forever. Jacob was a weak sinner. Looking ahead, 2,000 some years to the night Christ Jesus was crucified and paid the penalty of a sin, God extended mercy. God extended undeserved favor to him, and he has done the same for you and I if we have given our lives to Christ. God displays sovereign mercy to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Now, the, the book of Genesis describes to us the beginnings of our redemption in Christ Jesus, and one thing is very clear over and over and over again. It is all by God's grace. God showed unmerited favor to Abraham. God showed unmerited favor to Isaac. God showed unmerited favor to Jacob. And he worked in and through them in such a way so as to prove that it was him who was at work. It was God who brought life from barren wombs. It was God 
who would choose what that which was weak according to the world to shame the powerful. It was God that was working, God doing it, God leading, God being faithful to his promises. And it would be almost 2,000 years before Jesus was born. But when he was born, he came in humility, utter humility, living in humility. He died a humiliating death, yet he would rise again to life on the third day. And he did so so that all who would believe on his name, all the weak people, all the people that understand they're sick, need a savior, would be given the right to become children of God and experience healing, utter healing and salvation. Recipients of his mercy. God works in the world, not through what seems powerful and wise, but through what many consider weak and foolish. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand science. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. May may we not be ashamed to identify with Christ and his gospel, which the world calls foolish. Paul knew that it was a temptation, so he says in Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. May we not denigrate the power and might of God by somehow lifting ourselves up to say, I did that. God saves. God keeps. God will present us blameless before his presence with great joy. God is the one who is working. God is the one whom we can trust. God is the one in the middle of our sorrow that we can just sit back and and rest in. As we struggle, as we wonder, as as we weep, as we laugh, may we do so together. May we not be ashamed to identify with Christ's church, though she might seem very unimpressive to the world and sometimes has communicated in very difficult ways that are not right. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 1, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us through the See, the us piece saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. May we live and breathe each day, knowing most assuredly that God will sovereignly accomplish what he purposes through those whom many consider weak and foolish, for the glory of his name. May this truth cause us to find strength in him amid our weakness. May this truth cause us to find contentment in our faithful obedience amid a felt ineffectiveness, knowing that he is strongly accomplishing in us and through us that which he intends. May this truth cause us to find purpose in our life as we join God in his mission to proclaim his glory, both in the neighborhoods and the nations of the world, maturing and multiplying Disciples who enjoy, declare, and display the good news of Jesus Christ for the joy of all peoples. We have a trustworthy God that we can 
we can rest in and we can rejoice in and we sing to and we exult in and we live for and who will have our hand as we open that door and walk through that step of death. And he grabs our hand and welcomes us home as one of the ones who he has redeemed for his own glory and for our good.